your Locked On Senators, your daily podcast on the Ottawa Senators, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm Jake Sanderson, and you're listening to Locked On Senators Podcast. I'm Tim Stützle, and you're listening to the Locked On Senators Podcast. Welcome inside episode 615 of the Locked On Senators Podcast. I'm Ross Levitan on the outskirts of enemy territory in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Alongside Brandon Pillar up in the Blue Mountains and we have a Senators dad coming up on today's show. Dwayne Norris joins the show and he tells us all about raising a family while playing hockey over in Germany and Ross Not a big deal, but he scored a gold medal winning goal in the World Juniors. World Juniors, you say? Well, this year's edition of the tournament is ongoing and Senators prospects, as we'd expect, are front and center. We'll tell you who did what and more. This is the Locked On Senators podcast. It's your team every day. Thank you for making Locked On Senators your first listen on this Friday, August 12th. We are free and available on all platforms, including on YouTube, where the best way you can help the show grow is to like the videos by clicking the thumbs up below, subscribing to the Locked On Senators channel, and leaving a comment as well. The comment we want to know right now is Ridley Gregg. Has he changed your opinion if you were on the side saying, hey, if you need to get that top four defenseman, I know it hurts, but you got to give to get. Or has Ridley Gregg now turned into an untouchable? Pilsy, where are you at with Ridley Gregg after that one-handed beauty he scored in Game 1? Yeah, that was an incredible goal. And just, just another example, Ross, of Ridley Gregg looking like he's like there's nothing you can do here. He's kind of he's out of space. What can he do? And he pulls off a move like that. Incredible. Uh, to answer your question... He's an untouchable for me now. Like, you got to keep this guy. The The vibes are immaculate. He loves just being violent out there, which that's a guy you want on your side of the ice wearing your team's colors. So you'll love to see that. And he's not just a meathead out there. He's got a lot of skill. You just talked about that great goal that he pulled off. But he's had some nice assists, too. That assist he made, that nice little one-touch pass to Mason McTavish. Woo! Man, he's got the hockey IQ to balance out the grittiness. And not only that, uh, sticking to the first game against Latvia, where he was named player of the game, he had a goal and an assist. Mason McTavish had a goal and an assist. Connor Bedard had a goal and an assist. And out of those three players, they decided Ridley Gregg had the biggest impact. Now, some may say that minor penalties have been an issue, and discipline has been something he needs to work on as a whole, but still towing that line. But if you watch the replay on all three of those, like... I don't think any of them are called in the NHL. I was going to say, let's let's take a step back here and remember that this is the IIHF, and uh, they call the game a little different than what we're used to and a little different than the way Ridley Gregg likes to play. It was one hand on the stick, so maybe that's something he could work on, is two hands on the stick, even though one turned into a goal. I was going to uh, say, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, if, if one works, why well, use two? But just like a little like swinging stick, like, hey, I'm going to try to like get the puck, and it hit his shin pads. And all of a sudden, it goes down. The other one, he maybe call this a hook, but he kind of like tries to lift the guy's stick, and it like gets him in the chest a little bit, and his legs just give out from under him. 
arms are a long way from your feet, Pillsy. I don't know. But uh, it is something to work on. And we thought initially, because he took that penalty at the start of the the game um, last night against Slovakia, but Dave Cameron after the game saying Ridley Gregg didn't play, wasn't a discipline, like, uh, you know, have a seat, uh, a teaching moment. There's a precautionary situation. So I guess it's good Canada's off today as we're recording on Friday. They're back on Saturday. So Ridley Gregg, we're not sure if he's going to be in the lineup or not. Yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing him not come into the lineup. Uh, that was a bit of a, I think what happened that kind of may have given him a bump or a bruise was that weird hit where the guy chicken winged him a little and caught a right. piece of him and sent him spinning. I have a hard time thinking Ridley will sit out for that. Like we said, for Ridley Gregg to be playing uh, for Team Canada, he's had to battle through a lot in previous years. It means a lot for him. He's obviously having the time of his life. So after a period off and a day off, I think we'll see Ridley Gregg back in fine form. But who who knows how serious the injury is, right? Yeah, great to see. Good start to the tournament for Ridley Gregg. And how about big players scoring big goals? Zach Ostapchuk gets his first goal of the tournament with 11 seconds left to make it 11-1 to 1 for Canada in their game <laughs> against Slovakia. But all jokes aside, he has made an impact in oh, each yeah. of the two games, throwing big hits and making a few nice plays with the puck. Yeah, our buddy Liam's Martian, again, check out his clippings if you miss any of the games. But he made a good point that, like, a Stapchuk seems like a guy that's just exhausting to play against. Like, yeah. he doesn't give up. This guy is pedal to the metal the whole time. He is a four-checking beast. And what he does so well, Ross, is when he protects the puck with his body, he does it in an aggressive way. Like, he's he's not defending protecting the puck. He's attacking with the puck defending it. You know what I mean? Like, he's knocking guys down while deking through them and then sets up great opportunities. He's digging for that loose puck in corner battles. All these kinds of things just make our staff chuck look so great. I think it's a really good thing that they decided to have him not be the extra forward because I think everyone would have regretted that because you're seeing what he can do on a big stage now. 100%. And uh, I guess just to wrap up the conversation with Canada, Mason McTavish has to be, if he's not the top three, he's top one prospect outside the NHL drafted. He is unreal. Yeah, and he, he was your guy in that draft. And he how, did, how did in two different locked on mock drafts he fell to 10? Yeah, and we we snagged them both times. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty pretty crazy. Now looking back at it, and I, I know the Ducks aren't quite bottom feeders, but they're still rebuilding teams. Imagine if they have an opportunity to combine Bedard and McTavish together, they're so like good they're playing together. now. Oh my, they're God. so good together. And the under 18s as well. They, uh, last year they are unreal uh, together. Mason McTavish and I said after that draft where Ottawa selected tenth, I was like, thank God McTavish didn't go like seven, eight, or nine. Third overall, well-earned. That kid is an absolute stud. Touching it on the other sentence prospects, though, but we got to give a good Ottawa Valley boy like Mason McTavish his love on this show. But Finland, they win in a shootout. Oh, Levy Marilainen winning in a shootout. Shocker. (laughs) Everyone was on him. Craig Button was on him. Tony Ferrari was on him on Twitter, right? These are two friends of the show, but at the same time, you look at what uh, adversity can do to a goalie early on, like, I love that he stayed in the game. I mean, two goals. He was probably one more away and not even like an awful goal early. I know the third goal wasn't that great either in the third period. But after those two early ones, it was great to see him able to settle in and make saves. And then in the shootout, this guy's automatic. No yeah, chance exactly. on the no chance on the goal. That's, that's the thing, right? And I think 
with Levy Marilainen, he does have these games where he'll let in bunches of goals and maybe doesn't look great, but I, it seems like he always still helps his team stay in the game and they manage to win coming back. You know what I mean? Like, it felt that yeah. way in um, in Kingston, too. Like, it felt like, sure, maybe they'll go down a couple goals, but he's going to grind and make sure it doesn't get too out of hand so the team still has a chance to come back, and that's what he did. But you got to nod your hat to his buddy, Roby Jarventi, who also helped the case. We saw Jarventi score goals like that in Belleville, Ross. He has that corner picked out before Lodine came. It was all Jarventi with that uh, one-timer in his office there. And then, not uh, not to stop it there, Jarventi also gets a beautiful five-hole goal in the shootout. So, Sen's prospects are shining bright in this tournament so far. Yeah, it's been a quiet tournament for Tyler Clevin and Tomas Amara still getting his feet under him. Uh, you know, he's got the longest rope left of any of these guys as the youngest of all sense He showed prospects. off some nice hands, though. Like, he, yeah. he didn't, it didn't result in an assist or anything crazy, but he showed off some nice hands and some wheels when he's given some time and space. So good transition game from Hamara, I think. 100%. So coming up this weekend, tomorrow Canada and Chechia play. So it will be Hamara against yes. definitely on Stapchuk, and hopefully Ridley Gregg is back in the lineup. The United States next test will be against Austria. Okay, before we get to the interview with Dwayne Norris really excited to bring you guys this interview something a little bit different want to just give you a scheduling update so next week we are going to begin our organizational value rankings we have broken up all 64 players in the Sens organization into eight tiers we're going to do one tier per day every Tuesday and Thursday for the next four weeks so you'll still get your normal locked on senators podcast Monday Wednesday and Friday And then on Tuesday and Thursday, I'll get a bonus YouTube exclusive organizational value rankings. Hey, the the third edition of the organizational value rankings. So it's nice to see the trajectory, the movement, get the charts out, get the trackers out for this one. Yeah, definitely. Ross loves his charts, his trackers. uh, So this is definitely an exercise he enjoys. Although I enjoy it as well. It's a lot of uh, revisiting players and being like, where do they really stand? What group do they belong in? Who are the guys they're competing with jobs? Like who kind of fits in together in these tiers? So definitely we're excited to bring that to you. And uh, yeah, it'll be nice to have something for you guys to uh, digest each and every day. Because as we say, your team every day. And then September 13th, it's a Tuesday. That is when we go back to full-time your team every day for the Locked mm-hmm. On Senators podcast. And it's brought to you by our good friends like Bet Bet BetOnline has you covered with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. It's not their fault that I mushed the Winnipeg Blue Bombers yesterday. It's really not. But good thing I don't have the equivalent of Pillsy's Parlay of the Day, so I'm not getting a lot of mean messages on social media. But if you want nice messages on social media, you'll listen to our friends at betonline.net for all your sports scores, podcasts, news throughout the season. All seasons. They've got tennis, golf, all the summer sports, baseball. But then we're getting closer to football. Preseason's already here. That means that the gridiron action will be upon us. And that's always the best, right? Because all the games are happening at once. It's just complete chaos each and every Sunday. And the Senators, will they be underdogs like they have been in the past this year? Maybe not. But it's always fun to sprinkle a little action on the Sens when they are in action. All right, so head over to betonline.net. It's where the game starts. All right, let's get to our interview with Dwayne Norris. 
All right, we now welcome a very, very special guest, the native of St. John's, Newfoundland. His hockey journey took him off the rock and all around the world. He played 20 NHL games between the Quebec Nordiques and Anaheim Mighty Ducks before heading overseas, where he won two DEL championships during 11 successful seasons in Germany, 20th in all in league scoring all time. Not bad. He also won an Olympic silver medal for Canada and scored the gold medal clinching goal in the 1990 World Junior Hockey Championships. Now he's watching as his son, Josh, tries to compile hardware of his own with the Ottawa Senators. Dwayne Norris, welcome to Locked On Senators. How are you doing today? Doing good, boys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Man, it. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. This is a little bit different than, than what we've done in the past, but we're really excited because you have a hockey journey of your own. And I mentioned the World Junior success, so good timing with the tournament going on right now. First question, though, were you a little disappointed that Josh didn't represent Canada? I knew he grew up in the States, but you, of course, have a history with the red and white. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the boys only know what they know, right? So while I was playing and in the offseason in Europe, I used to come back to the U.S. because I played college at Michigan State. So we kind of made our home base at that time more in the U.S. than in Canada, even though all my family is on the East Coast. And, you know, wasn't quite sure where we're going to settle down, but those gap years for the 12 seasons or 15 years I was in Germany landed in the U.S. So really didn't know uh, any different. They were kind of born in the U.S., obviously connected to Canada, still celebrated Canada's, uh, you know, hockey, um, you know, hockey rivalries and playoffs and all that. But in the end, uh, you know, we're in the red, white and blue. Yeah. And, and that's fair. Like you said, uh, if you're born and raised in the States, you, you feel like they got to uh, stay true to that, but let's stick to uh, the, the good Canadian moments. And one that Ross mentioned where you scored the game winning goal in 1990 to give Canada the gold medal over the Czech Republic. Take us through that moment from, from your memory. Like that's gotta be an all time moment uh, for you. And one that you can carry and brag about uh, to, to this day. All I got to say, boys, you score one big goal, right? You get a few shout outs for the next 30 years. So you know, <laughs> yep. I was, uh, you know, it, I was a guy that was probably added to the team, not late, but a little bit underneath the radar. So when I, I had made a team and made a good impression at Christmas and whatnot, um, I was fortunate enough to put me uh, on a line with Mike Ricci. And, and uh, gosh, I forget who the other side was, but um, it was one of those special moments where you hope you could make the team. Not a lot of kids from East had made the world junior team at that time. And, um, I just wanted to play any role possible. So they ended up putting me on a real good line. And we're in in uh, Helsinki, Finland at the time, which was a big adjustment back in the 90s. We never had the fluff that a lot of these kids have now when they go to the big events, right? So re- yeah. rained the night before the game and and whatnot. So uh, it was an awesome moment. It was one of those uh, back in the day where there was no championship game. It was just round robin. True. So what happened was whoever won um, – you know, whoever had the best record uh, by the end of the regular round robin is the ones that end up winning. So we were uh, we were playing at the time Czechoslovakia an hour later than Russia and Sweden. And the only way we could win goal was we had to beat the Czechs. The Czechs were undefeated. Um, the Swedes had to tie or beat the Russians. And it was 2 nothing for Sweden going into the third period. So things looked pretty glim for us. They were going into the third period. We were just getting started. And uh, we found out halfway through the second period that Matt Sundin had tied the game against Russia with a second left. So that game was tied 2-2 Russia-Sweden, which means we had to win our game. And at that time, uh, midway through the second period, I ended up scoring a, you know, a goal off a backhand, and that went on to be the winner. So it was, it was kind of a cool moment, a lot different format than right now. It was lifelong memories, uh, guys that I've remained friends with for a long, long time. And um, 
it certainly obviously gave me a little spring in my step for my pro career. So it was, uh, it was awesome. Anytime you, you wear the red and white for candidates, uh, it's a proud moment. And for me, I was really grateful for the opportunity and the way it turned out, it just couldn't have been any better. Oh, that's awesome. I love that story. I get goosebumps here, you know, getting the gold medal around your neck and all that. And as you said, 30 years later, we're still talking about it as though it was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. So I get grief for the household every year because the world junior comes on, someone brings it up on TV and my kid's <laughs> wife look at me like, really, can we get past this moment? I'm like, Hey, score one big one. They remember you for a long time. That's, yep. that's just it. Well, Hey, uh, Josh tried to get there. He got the gold medal at the world under 18s, but you still have bragging rights. I think silver was the best he did at the world juniors. Yeah. A little bit. He was fortunate enough two years, one in Buffalo, one in Van, And, and obviously those were, those were awesome. We had a chance to see the one in Buffalo. We um, were there as well, actually. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, it, was, uh, yeah. it was a little bit of a disappointing uh, for the U S they, they didn't play quite as well as maybe about people had hoped for the talent they had. But then when we went to Vancouver out, west the following year it was um yeah it was all and then some and obviously lost to finland in overtime so it was pretty cool and to see him go in his first year as uh you know really as a role-playing guy had to play wing instead of center because they're so deep in the middle kind of played that third fourth line role and then the next year uh in vancouver he played a much bigger role and was one of their captains so it was uh it was great to see the growth what's the uh, vibe like in the norris household when michigan plays michigan state at any sport you know what? I mean, it's uh, it's been a while, obviously, since I've been there. My wife and I both went to state, which was awesome. Uh, we certainly loved the time we had there. The hockey program was incredibly strong, and it slipped a little, but they have some new leadership in there now, hoping to get it back. But anytime they played head-to-head, for the first couple of years that Josh was playing at Michigan, I was still certainly a little green and white. And then, obviously, towards the end, just with him playing for Michigan and, and having a tremendous experience, it's hard not to uh, – not to root for the other side as well, which kills me because I learned how to hate uh, Michigan. That's for sure. When I was playing college hockey. Hey, so we want to get back into Josh a little bit later, but I want to focus on your career a bit more. Now you said 30 years ago, we're still talking about that goal. I'm sure three years ago on the East coast, it was still, you know, as loud as possible. And you got to actually play in the AHL in Halifax. It's a city that means a lot to both pills. He was just visiting there and I lived there for a few years. What was that experience like playing, I guess, as close to home as you could have playing pro hockey. You know, it was really cool when I came out of state, um, you know, obviously drafted by Quebec and, and their farm team was Halifax. And to your point, between that and Cape Breton and uh, St. John, New Brunswick, those were the areas that were closest to Newfoundland. So it was really cool. I mean, I had some you know friends that were going to um, university at the time in Halifax when I was playing. Um, I felt uh, really rooted, you know, kind of moving towards the East Coast back in Halifax, which is a great city, college town. Support was good. And um yeah, it, it was great. Um, you know, you wish you had those years back, but at the same time, they're all part of growth and development. And I certainly appreciated the time in Halifax, the opportunity I had and had some awesome teammates too. Some of my best teammates I've ever played with. Yeah. And then from there, you went on to the Quebec Nordiques. And speaking of awesome teammates, I'm really interested to hear about your time playing uh, with legends like Joe Sackick, Peter Forsberg, those guys in their early years. I could just Picturing those guys wearing the Quebec Nordiques jersey for me is just so funny. I always picture them as Colorado Avalanche. I think some of our generation forgets that that all started in Quebec. What was it like uh, getting to skate with those guys so early in their career? Could you tell that uh, they had something a little, a little special even back then? 
Yeah, I mean, at the time, right, you're trying to prove your own self, so you're really focused yeah. on you. But when I was going in there, um, the Lindros trade had happened the year before, so they picked up a lot of players. I forget, uh, you know, Peter was Forsberg. Forsberg, yeah. Forsberg, Forsberg is one of them, yeah. and I think there's a couple of first-rounders. I'm not sure if Adam Deadmarsh was in there. There was a bunch of money, like $15 million, which yeah. was a massive deal at the time. And, you know, obviously – it, it was awesome, but at the same time, it was a little disappointing because I came out of college my senior year and had a great year, and um, I signed with the Nordiques, but all of a sudden, they went from being probably a pretty solid team to a cup contender, so yeah. that affects your depth and opportunity, right? So I remember getting into camp going, man, it's there's not a lot of room out here to be able to make a spot or uh, earn a spot, I should say, but you now the talent there, guys like Joe Sackick and Peter Forsberg and Mike Ricci and Owen Nolan and Val Kaminsky, yeah. I mean, they're awesome awesome players and but they're awesome dudes too and uh they treated me with uh you know a lot of um a lot of respect and they didn't have to and they certainly established themselves pretty quickly as a powerhouse and they really that trade went on to be allow them to probably win multiple stanley cups and then in the later years a couple years later they picked up guys like wendell clark and you know who are unbelievable teammates and mentors and even though i was there a short period of time they certainly treated me uh, not like a rookie and made me feel welcome. Not to mention you had that big 13 in the middle there, six foot five, Matt Sundin. That was pretty damn good too. So yeah. it was, a, it was a stacked team. I remember some games, maybe not playing as quite as much as you'd want. And you sit on the end of the bench going, man, this, there's a lot of players better than teams, better than this one. Uh, I'd like to see who they are. So uh, they obviously went on and, and won multiple cups. Honestly, yeah, those guys are just absolute legends. And uh, you, you got to spend a couple of years uh, in the NHL and uh, some time in the AHL. What was the AHL like back in those days? I'm curious, uh, you spent time in Cornwall with the Aces and then in yeah. Baltimore. How how different was the AHL back then compared to uh, now? Was it still kind of a developmental league back in the day? Or what was that like? Well, back in the day, you know, it was more of an old boy, new boy club. You know, you still have that, I guess, in the, maybe in the American League with the rookies coming in. But, you know, look at the the reality is you look at the NHL, you have guys that are turning into be stars at 20 years old. You know, back in those days, a lot of guys went to the AHL because they couldn't make the jump right from college to pro. And they spent multiple years down there. Sometimes would, guys would be 25, 26, 27 before they get their first opportunity. And that was kind of the path of how it was, right? The older players... Uh, we're hanging around a lot longer in the NHL than I think they are now. Yeah. And obviously today's game, there's much more youth and the stars of the game and the faces of the game are probably for the most part, all under age 25, 26. And it certainly has changed a lot. Um, you know, there was a lot more physicality to the game. You know, your top two lines were offensive, your bottom two lines crash bang, and you're going to be dropping the mitts every other night. And you don't <laughs> see that as much. Obviously that part's gone out of the game. Not that that was my domain, because it certainly wasn't. But uh, I remember a few scary nights in Cape Breton and Fredericton on the road with guys like Jerry Fleming and and guys like that, Mark LaForge, who were heavyweights chasing you around on the road going, oh, my God, this is, this is what it's all about, pro hockey. Like, this is a little different than what I expected. Yeah, no kidding. And um, so from there, and I'm really excited to get into this part of your career. Uh, I have German heritage, so I'm really interested in German hockey. And Sens fans have uh, really start to kind of learn about the DEL with Tim Stutzla uh, emerging with the team. So what can you tell us about the, the DEL? Like what's something that most casual NHL fans wouldn't know about how that league operates and how hockey's played over in Germany? 
Well, what I would say, you know, the Germans have done a really nice job of development of their own players, but they've opened up the borders enough to to entice the, the foreigner to come in, if you will, or out-of-country player to really, you know, make their players better. My first year when I went over, Jim Montgomery and I, you know, Jimmy's coaching now in Boston, he was playing in the minors, I was playing in the minors, and we went together. There was only two imports. We went to Cologne, Germany. Andy Murray was uh, the GM and coach, and so with only two imports at the time, back in the mid-90s, most of the league was German. But then the following year, they opened it up to 18 or 20 foreigners. Wow. So literally the team that I was on, guys like Marty Murray, Johnny Bois, Serge Bomesso, Corey Millen, these were guys that were all really good players in North America, you know, maybe a little undersized and, yeah, you know, um, wasn't able to crack the top six so they go to Europe. So I was really surprised – pleasantly surprised how good the depth and the quality of the league was. And there's a lot of players that are over there that people in North America kind of forgot about because they haven't been seen in a while. Yeah. And then when you see some of these teams play, you're like, man, some of these guys can really go. And uh, they're players that you kind of forgot about, but it's a, uh, it's a deep league. Um, you know, the Germans have done a nice job of developing and, and it's a, it's a great opportunity for kids. Maybe if it doesn't work out in North America, there's some really, really good spots I remember my first year in Cologne, we had a brand new rink that held 18,000. We averaged just over 14. Wow. And, um, it was exciting. It was loud. It was obnoxious. And I and they do the chants kind of like soccer there as well, right? Like they got the yeah. songs going and they're, they're yeah. crazy, eh? My kids were right in the middle of it, right? So once they <laughs> uh, once they got to the age of going to the games and watching and enjoying it, right, uh, they were right in the middle of the crowd, of course, with kind of my wife or friends or babysitters or whatever. And it was like being a, it was like being at a football game on wheels. So from the uh, exposure and the experience and all of that fun stuff, it's, it really is incredible. And um, the league is good. Obviously the best leagues, the NHL, but there's a lot of other leagues that have really good players in it. And uh, you know, you can make a good living at it too. Yeah, no doubt. And not only living in terms of setting yourself up, but your family. And that's where you were raising right. your three three young sons, if I'm not mistaken. And what was right. that whole experience like, you know, with the language barrier to an extent and everything else that goes on with uh, raising a family overseas? Yeah, it was cool. Like anything, right? My wife and I had gone. Um, I think, uh, you know, we didn't have kids at the time. but She got pregnant right away with all, uh, Cole, my oldest, then Josh, then Dalton. And like anything, you know, you're leaving home, right? So you're leaving family and friends and, you, and you're over there with three small kids in a foreign country. Um, you know, you don't have a whole lot of support. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to play in Cologne for seven years and then played in Frankfurt for five and managed for three. But it was a big, uh, big adjustment at the start. I mean, just little things like getting around the grocery store and yep. language and all that fun stuff, right? But they adapted really quickly. All the boys spoke the language you know, once they're at that age where they're old enough to go into school, we put them in bilingual Montessori. So majority of the school time was German, probably 80% of the kids. So they, you know, they spoke German just like any other German kid on the playground, at the rink, because a lot of those kids didn't speak English. I had the luxury, though, of both organizations, the Cologne Sharks and Frankfurt Lions, that they had North American management. Yep. And pretty much the whole team was almost Canadian. So I had a little bit of an out. Um, you know, my language, uh, the German language for me, I didn't do a great job of adapting right away just because they didn't have to. But then once I got into be a GM and had to have press conferences and stuff like that in German, it was a, a little eye opening to say the least. <laughs> and just to say I had my uh, American German accent flowing fluently. So the boys used to laugh at me at that, but it was a tremendous experience. 
it allowed the boys to integrate in integrate in another um obviously another culture language hockey lifestyle and they loved it. I mean, we've sat around the table many a time the last two, three, four years to say, hey, why don't we go back and revisit things? Yep. I mean, that was home for them and that was impactful and a lot of great memories, that's for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So what was it about Germany specifically that made you want to go there over maybe going to, to Sweden or, or to Russia or to Finland or Switzerland or all the other yep. options? Why did you land in Germany specifically? Yeah, good point. I mean, the KHL at the time really wasn't in existence. So, you know, I had offers or in multiple countries and actually had verbally committed to go to Switzerland first uh, okay. and, and then rethought that a little bit because, you know, um, Switzerland, they, they they put a lot of not pressure isn't the right word because I was used to that, but they put a lot of emphasis and blame on the on the foreigner. And he only had a couple. And I'm thinking my first year to Europe, there's a big change for my wife and I and Jimmy Montgomery, who was a, a really good player in the American League, was a center. I was a scoring winger. Um, we kind of connected together. Both were engaged, you know, in our mid-20s and decided, hey, why don't we go as a package deal? Nice. I'm a finisher. You're a passer. Hopefully we get on the same line and have some <laughs> success. And maybe we'll go that route. So I kind of switched gears from Switzerland, even though the money was a little bit better. I was trying to look at big picture quality of life for my wife and starting a family and international school if we go that route. So. Um, I don't regret it by any means. It stayed 15 years, but every country is just a little bit different style of hockey and lifestyle. And it was one that I felt kind of worked out for me. Not too many players go and be in Europe for 15 years and be on two teams. And I was fortunate enough to do that. And, uh, you know, obviously something I was proud of, but it got st brought stability for us. And I could lock the door and leave our stuff there at the end of the hockey season and just kind of pack up the things we needed for summer and made the transition a lot easier. So how old would Josh have been when you guys moved back full-time to the States? Well, I moved back in 2010 as a manager. So Josh is 23, right? So that's nine years ago. Josh is 20, 23. So Josh would have been, you know, somewhere around 10 when we moved back. Um, the oldest Cole was 12. There's two-year gap between the boys. So I think they're 12, 10, and 8. Okay. Might have been 11, 9, and 7, something like that. And it just got to a point where I was managing and I, I loved it. I mean, I was fortunate enough to go right from playing to be the GM and um, odd as that sounds, it doesn't really happen that often. No. I don't know if that was a compliment or not, but um, you know, I just thought at that time it's for the boys, they were excited about hockey. I didn't know what North American hockey would bring to them, how talented they were going to be, or were they going to be above average, but I was, it was time to give them the opportunity for hockey. And I felt like if I, stayed much longer, the winter might close a little bit on my oldest. So we decided to do that. I was excited to come back after 15 years. They all wanted to stay, uh, my wife included. And wow. uh, I just thought that maybe that was the right move at that time and to get acclimated back to North America. Now, what was the youth hockey uh, scene like in Germany? Like, so, so for your sons growing up as young kids in Germany, were, were they involved in good youth programs in Germany or had that not really quite taken off yet? Yeah, it's funny you said that. Um, you know, the youth program in Germany, and I don't know what it is now. I know what it was when I left, was very average at best and then some. Um, you know, when you get into Sweden and Finland and Russia, their youth programs, I think, are much more depth. There's much more focus. There's a lot more players playing. I mean, Germany typically is known for its football, right? Soccer, I should say. And um, so the program was very average, but we made the best of it. Uh, Josh played up a couple of years. 
uh, play with his oldest son. So the boys played on the same team. And then my youngest one was playing in that, you know, Adam novice type of age group, which, you know, at that time, you're just, it's all about having fun, right. And being passionate for the game. But uh, the youth program was very average. Um, I did my best to try to help out with gaps when I was managing and playing to not necessarily coach, but be a part of practices because to be quite frank, it's not their specialty, right? But it's obviously come a long way. They've got some really good players, former NHL players that are running and a part of the German Ice Hockey Federation. And they've obviously done a nice job with results in the Olympics and World Juniors. Absolutely. One of the most embarrassing moments on this show is when uh, when Josh was initially traded to Ottawa. We're like, oh, yeah, he was selected by San Jose and, and he grew up playing minor hockey in Oakland. So that makes sense. So way, way to go for us on, on, on that one. Obviously, it's, it's in Michigan there. But um, I see that. Did you coach your youngest then? Because I think it was uh, a little later on. But what was uh, what was Josh's trajectory like playing youth hockey? Because you saw the points Roy's there. At what point did you know that Man, this guy could be a high pick in the NHL draft? You know what I would say? And I, I do this all the time when I talk to parents because I run an academy, hockey academy here in Detroit. It's 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 so hard to project, right? But what I would say is, you know, I, I coached him the last year. I think he was 14, and it was AAA locally here. And, and we had a good team. Uh, I think we won states that year. And and it was one of those ones where I saw potential. Um, consistency was pretty solid. Compete was always good. Um, but I always felt with the natural athleticism that he had and skating ability and ability to shoot a puck that he could probably do more, not as pressure, but I should say probably dominate more. And, um, but, you know, he stayed within himself and, and I give him a lot of credit. And I remember us having conversations just briefly about it as he was heading into the national team, not knowing where he would slot as a top two center, three or four is, you know, play 200 feet, play on both sides of the puck get a chance to play at some point at college or whatever it is. There's always room for guys that play responsible both ends. Right. So it was something that at a young age as a centerman, you know, I think 12 or 13, 13 or 14, he was really focusing on Jonathan Taves style of hockey. And that was kind of something that he wanted to uh, mimic his game about. Now that may seem kind of foolish as a 14 year old, but at the same time, mm -hmm. right. You got goals and aspirations and, and he could have picked out a lot sexier players, but Jonathan Taves at the time, obviously, was a really good player. So I would say, you know, once he got into the national team, guys, I really didn't even really know that because I remember sitting with Big Walt, uh, Keith Kachuk there, when the boys went into the national team. Josh Wade wasn't projected as one of the top, say, six forwards on the national team the first year. He was hurt the last four months of the season, and he managed to – tape his ankle up and get him out for a few skates. Him and I, there's like eight or 10 skates. He hadn't been on the ice in four months. He's going to the top 40 camp, which is a big deal, right? It's the top 40 kids in the country. I'm thinking, God, his ankle doesn't give out. Like, can he show enough and be off that long to, yeah. to maybe turn some heads? And he went there and made the team. I think he had that first year, he was kind of playing as a number two, three centerman. And he just hit his stride between him and Quinn Hughes and, and Brady and they worked hard and, you know, all of a sudden they really popped that second year and, and that confidence and explosiveness and skating and ability to shoot a puck off pass off stride, all that stuff seemed to come together. And it was really not until that year. And even then, you know, guys, when he was drafted by San Jose, I think it was 19th or something like that overall or 18th, uh, he was projected like number 60 that year in January. So he was never on the top 23 or top 25. And then once he got to the NHL combine and 
you know, kind of dominated that is what he did. I think it really uh, increased his value stock-wise with his athleticism and kind of jump in conjunction with his play and winning the world championships with Brady and Quinn on the A-teams to really slot him down uh, lower into the draft. So to answer your question, long-winded, you know, I, I never really thought, I knew he had potential, but I didn't know at what point would it pop, would it all come together. That 18-U year where things were with the national team, where things were really on the line, big moments, scored big goals, big situations, and had a coach that empowered him to play in all those situations. So I would say going into his draft year was the year I really saw, thought, you know what, he's got a chance from what people are telling you, but you got to stay humble on that stuff because getting drafted and playing in the NHL are two different things, as you know. Definitely. So on his draft night, uh, he held up a good luck troll. Does he still have that? Or did you have to tell him, <laughs> Hey, when you turn 20, that's kind of got to go in the closet. It's funny you said that because I remember, I think his, my wife had given it to him as a little fun Christmas gift. I think going into his second year of the national team, because there was ebbs and flows the first year he broke his wrist, you know, ice time, other players playing in front of you. You're trying to hang on to something to give you confidence to put you over the edge. So I think she gave that to him in his Christmas stocking for fun the first year. And then as he went into the second year, it was one of those ones where he came out of the gates pretty hot and kept it. And all of a sudden you become a little superstitious. So after the draft happened, uh, you know, um, and I think they interviewed him with that troll or whatever the hell it was. Uh, you know, I think he kind of gassed that to the point where I'm going into college now. I can't be walk- hanging around a troll in my stall as a hockey player. So he got rid of it, I think, and it was just a pocket of superstition. So it was pretty funny, actually. Hey, wh- whatever works, works. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't care how you get it done now. Now you mentioned uh, Walt Kachuk, Brady Kachuk, uh, famously when the Ottawa Senators acquired Josh Norris as part of the Eric Carlson deal, Pierre Dorian said he's Brady Kachuk's best friend. We think this is going to be a good connection here. Do you have any fun uh, stories of Brady and Josh from their youthful days uh, playing hockey or or off the ice? Anything uh, fun you can share with us about those two kids growing up? Because I imagine they must have been a handful when they got together. It's funny, too, you know, because Keith was involved in coaching the St. St. Louis Junior Blues, and I was with the Oakland Junior Grizzlies in Detroit, so they were the same age, and we were playing in the same league, so it was funny. At that time, you never project that these kids are going to be one teammates, good friends, and do what they're doing at this point in their short NHL career, but, you know, I would say at the national team, right, um, Big Keith and uh, Jim and Alan Hughes, they had a, a condo that they shared together just to to um, make sure the boys were doing all the right things. So Josh lived with a billet family down in, in Armour, Ann Arbor, while Quinn and, um, and Brady lived with uh, Keith would come in every two weeks or then Ellen and Jim. And so there's a number of times I remember thinking at the world championships, the boys weren't playing well that 18 new year we're in Slovakia or wherever it was. And, you know, we all had high expectations. It's a big year for them. The draft is coming up there. There's, you know, supposed to be the, top players on the team, three or four of them. And the boys had a couple of nights where they didn't play well in the championship. So let's just say big Walt leaned on the boys a little bit out of the parking lot, Uh-oh. let them know that it's got to be much better. And, uh, you know, they followed that up with um, some success real quickly. And, and they had a couple of big goals in the championship game. So, you know, as a whole, I would say guys, you know what, they had fun with it. They had great mentorship with Jim and Ellen and, and, and big Walt. They were a huge impact of Josh going through the development team and, then, of course, when he went into Michigan, you know, you're around good coaches, good staff, and, you know, hopefully you you give yourself an opportunity to be on a platform to have a career. 
So nothing in particular, nothing crazy. You know, they were pretty, uh, pretty honest, hardworking kids that were very yeah. focused. And I respect them for that. And uh, once they got together and then obviously the trade happened and, you know, I remember when the trade happened at the time, there was a lot of people saying, Hey, you know, we don't need Brady's best friend. We need a good player. Right. Which I understand, you know, and at the end of the day, it's about making the Ottawa senators better. And uh, Josh was probably just kind of hitting his stride a little bit. And of course, played in Belleville had a really good year and has done well since then. So, you know, it's just funny how things kind of work out, right. It's uh, they've been together a long time and good friends and, Great people and, uh, you know, Brady's heart and soul of that team, that's for sure. Yeah, our favorite thing to say about Josh is that everyone in the building knows the puck's coming to him on the power play, but nobody can do anything about it. It's pretty fun to see. I'm sure in your seat, you're just like, hey, tee him up and he'll be able to put in the back of the net. Well, they've got some dynamics, obviously, with their power play, and they've added to Brinkett now and Drew, which obviously are, you know, star players. And, you know, that's the key to having a good power play. As you know, if you watch Tampa's, they they can score off the bumper, they can score off Kucherov, they can score off Stamkos. And I think, I'm not saying that this team is going to be them because they have a ways to go to prove that, but they have a lot of dynamics in their power play. And at some point, smart players are going to find open players. And guys like Batherson and Stutzel and Shabbat and obviously Brady Netfront, it's uh, it's made their, their power play, I think, uh, not one-dimensional. So... What do I know? That's for the for the pro coaches to teach. <laughs> well, hey, you do know a thing or two about a thing or two. Not only the career that we talked about, but you mentioned your academy there in Michigan, which is total package hockey. Anyone in the Michigan area, definitely go check that out. Uh, so, Dwayne, when you're watching uh, Brady and, and Josh on the ice, is it pretty similar stylistically to how they played back at the program? It really is. You know, that must really be pretty is. cool. Like five years later at the highest level and still kind of having that youthful exuberance the way they played. It is, you know, and, and, and like I say, I saw them pop the second year and, you know, that program sets you up for that. Right. So they work you to death that first year, not in a negative way, but they put you in a position for the grind and the lifting. And they're not so much worried about the wins and losses the first year, because they know if you put in the time and the energy and you're super tired that first year, the payoff's going to be the next year, right. With size, strength, power, and confidence. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, it's been really cool to see. I think that second year with the 18s when they won Worlds and they were on the same line, very similar to how they're playing right now. I mean, obviously, Brady's a man out there. He's a moose. And, uh, you know, Josh has worked on his shot and ability to get open at times. And these are all things, obviously, finding your craft and knowing what your identity is. And it's a, it's a nice combo. Obviously, uh, in the NHL, it's very difficult to score goals. Maybe sometimes Josh is on the receiving end of, nice plays and passes, but at the same time, you got to have guys that can finish. Right. So um, right now, anyway, he, that's uh, the spot that he's slotting and having and finding success. But the part I do like is that he's scoring goals in different ways. It's not just off the power play, which obviously those numbers are fairly high, whatever it was last year, 14 or 15, but he's still scoring off pass tips, rebounds, scrambles, heavy stick, net front presence, stuff like that. So I don't think he's completely one dimensional when it comes to scoring. He's not one dimensional when it comes to the entire game. Who taught him more about uh, dropping the mitts? You or Brady? Because he's, uh, I'd say, one and zero in the AHL and one and zero in yep. the NHL in terms of win loss and scraps. No, like I told him the one time in the American League when some guys were kind of on him a little bit. It's like at some point you're going to have to answer the bell. We didn't talk about it much. I certainly never fought. I couldn't fight my way out of a paper bag when I played. <laughs> I couldn't give him any any tips on that, but I just said to him, Hey, when you pick your spot, know who you're fighting and start swinging as opposed to 
to receiving and then reacting. So he did pretty well, obviously. And the one he had against Romanoff, he kind of agitated him a little bit. But he was smart. He picked the guy that was young. Yep. Not an established player that had fought a number of times because sometimes you bite off more than you can chew. But unfortunately, or fortunately, he didn't do it that night. Yeah, we got a lot of opportunities to watch Josh. Uh, Ross and I worked for the Belleville Senators uh, for the team when he was in Belleville. So we had a lot of fun watching him come over and dominate in the AHL. And he's come a long way since then. And I, I'm just curious from, from a parent's view, and uh, you can say as much or as little about this as you want, but when he's going through his contract negotiations, how involved are you in this process? And is he is he kind of turning to you asking for advice? And uh, are you having conversations about this? Or is that just between him and his agent? Like, how does all, all that kind of work? You know, like anything, right? It's my, our first go around, meaning outside of my own personal contract. And Times have changed. And I'll be honest with you. You know, I've got all three boys still playing. We talk hockey around the table at dinner at night in fun or in whatever or news yeah. that's out there on players. But I don't try to coach them very often. When I say that, you know, if they're struggling with something, maybe they'll say, hey, what do you think? And I'll give them the usual response, say, you know, keep your head down, work hard, do the things right, things like that. But, you know, as far as the negotiation, Craig Oster, Donnie Mia with Newport, I mean, those guys are professionals, some of the best in the business. Um, when negotiations, Ottawa wanted to start negotiating, I think it was last October. And and I give Josh a lot of credit. You know, he he talked to Craig and and said, hey, you know, Craig, um, I, I think I want to bet on myself. You know, nice. yep. I want to play the year out. And uh, Josh called me and said, hey, this is what I'm kind of thinking. What do you think? And I said, hey, man, you know, you believe in yourself and the confidence and the opportunity within this team going through a rebuild. and you know who they have there as personnel. You obviously got to go out and earn it and then be productive, whatever that is. So I give him a lot of credit because they wanted to negotiate early in the year. And, and it's not like he said, no, he just said, I want to focus on playing. Yep. I want to give myself the best chance. Uh, I'll let the chips fall where they may. And obviously you had a good year and was the benefactor on the back end of signing a new contract. I love I, that. I really, be, be, sorry, go ahead. I mean, I really wasn't involved in the contract negotiations once it started. And not that I couldn't have been, but, you know, this is Josh. It's his career. Yep. Um, he's got good people around him. When it came to term, of course, you know, the length of the contract, uh, he said, what do you think? And I had kind of made my opinion on it. And I said, listen, this is your career. You go with what you believe in. But, you, you know, knowing that a program wants you for a long time and having some security is always something as a parent, you, um, you know, you hope for your kids. But at the same time, um, you know, whatever term he decided to sign, it certainly would have been uh, would have been fine. So we certainly appreciate the stability that they've given Josh. And having said that, a lot of um, responsibility comes with that. Uh, now he can pay for any damages around the house, too, eh? Yeah, he just drove over the sprinkler head. So I'm going to send him a bill for twenty four ninety nine that he just busted off as he's driving. The water was going straight up in the air. Oh, <laughs> my God. What That's a Final question for me, Dwayne. Can't thank you enough. This has been uh, this has been awesome. We have a lot of listeners out on the rock, and of course, that's where you you started your entire life. I, I know Josh said right before he signed the deal, you guys were out there. Is that something you guys make an effort to go back and, and visit family as often as you can? Yeah, I mean, all my family is there, brothers and mom and aunts and uncles, and we try to go back every year. We always had a hockey school, meaning me and my two brothers to kind of give back, and we had 120, 130 kids and spent a week there, and when COVID hit, of course, we couldn't get back to Canada. I hadn't been there in two and a half years, at least to Newfoundland. And we really wanted to get back. And the boys were at that age the last time we went that they absolutely loved it. 
Um, the people were great. And this year we went back and didn't do any hockey school and just kind of did our thing for six or seven days between, you know, renting a fishing boat and yep. going to outdoor concerts. And, you know, they're at that age, right? It's an awesome age. And, you know, I wanted them to see the culture and the heritage that I grew up with. And they loved it there. My wife likes it there. It's a, it's a different world in a positive way. So it was really nice for them to get back and connect some roots and throw by the minor hockey rink that I grew up in and the school that I went to. And, you know, life's a blur, right? And sometimes there's gaps. And unfortunately, my kids never grew up in Newfoundland, saw, you know, what it was like and where I, you know, grew as a player and go, went to school and all that stuff. So it was, uh, it was really cool. It was funny because the contract was really close to being signed and we were hoping that it was going to be while we were in Newfoundland, or I should say Josh was hoping it was in Newfoundland. And the verbal commitment came the night before he left. And then when he got on a plane the next day, because my wife and I stayed a few extra days with family, uh, he called us while he was in transit on uh, to Toronto and said, hey, I'm going to sign when I get in tonight. So it was uh, it was really cool, man. It was kind of like the perfect storm. Yeah, I'm sure the lambs were flowing. Want to give a shout out to your favorite spot on George Street or what? God, there's so many of them. I mean, O'Reilly's Pub is one of them. It's uh, it's funny because, uh, God, who's the guy? Commodore, I think it is, who's on Spit and Chicklet Sauce. Funny yep. guy. He was just in Newfoundland, I think, last week. And I saw something on Twitter that he was saying how he's having a ride on George Street. So, you know, a pretty cool spot If uh, for people that have never really experienced out east. Yeah, great people. You're on the water. There are a lot of nightlife and, and and great bars and seafood and all that stuff. So it's uh it's a special place. It always will be for me. Yeah, I got screeched in at Christians. Good spot. Oh, that's where I got that's where the boys guys screeched in yeah. two years ago. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Let's just say that they were short a few alcoholic beverages by the time <laughs> we got that night. That's yeah, awesome. that that sounds about right. Yeah. I, I just got my first taste of East Coast lifestyle a couple weeks ago. I went out to PEI in Halifax for the first right. time. And uh now I've definitely got Newfoundland uh on my list yeah. as well as St. John's. And now final question for me, uh Dwayne, and thanks for joining us. Um, like I mentioned, I have uh, German uh heritage, so I'm very interested in uh Germany what was your favorite spot when when you were over there and where are you thinking I got to get back and visit there again you know one of the great things about what we did was obviously the boys got to experience another culture but youth hockey like they played some local games but they played a lot of games in Austria Switzerland Prague I mean four or five hour drive in the car four hours you're in London England five hours you're in Austria six hours you're in Prague so you know, those aren't real long drives. So what was really cool was the boys got a chance to experience multiple cultures and countries. So, you know, as far as Germany, Bavaria is really, really cool down south, which borders Austria and little towns like Fussen and and uh, Hamburg or I should say Munich, I should say. But I love the cities that we were in. Cologne is a beautiful city and, and Frankfurt is very westernized. So mm-hmm. now we were blessed. The two cities that I played in were very, um, very transient and gave us a, a little taste of home, but at the same time, a big piece of the German culture. Well, people are going to be fired up about this one. Uh, we already got a note in on Twitter saying, I still got my Dwayne Norris hockey school Jersey from the old Gander garden. So oh, people are fired up. They remember And <laughs> Hey, hopefully we'll run into you at the CTC when you're in town, have a couple, uh, have a couple pops with you, but we can't thank you yeah. enough for coming on the show, Dwayne. It's been really fun. Yeah. Awesome boys. Thanks so much. And for all you guys do. And, uh, Looking forward to a successful year for the boys. So, you know, go Senators.
Tick taps to Nufi for joining us. Awesome conversation with him. Really enjoyed the insight uh, to how it was growing up for, for his family over in Germany. What was your favorite part of that interview, Pilsy? Yeah, as you guys know, and I mentioned a couple times in the interview, I have German heritage. I've visited there a bunch of times, still a family over there. So for, for me to listen to a guy born in Newfoundland to be like, yeah, I'm going to live in Germany for about a decade and play hockey here. It was pretty cool to see his perspective and what he thought about it. So I definitely thought that was cool. And Ross, it's always it's always refreshing when you know the guests are excited to be on the show. Not that we have guests that like are disgruntled or anything like that, but Dwayne Norris, he got back to you really quickly. He I'm was trying to very think of excited. what guest was least excited to come on. <laughs> I mean, we we could probably do a whole episode on uh, people that are least excited to come on. But what I'm saying is it's just really nice when you get someone like Dwayne Norris who is excited to share his story and, and you know, not be kind of guarded and media safe. Like he was willing to share uh, a lot with us uh, uh, on the record and off the record. So it was great to yeah. kind of make a relationship with him as well. Yeah, beauty. It's something we might try to go back to in terms of having parents on the show. I thought that yeah, was really cool. cool insight. Very different. Very different. And we want to bring you every angle we can here on Locked On Senators. One more note before we go. It's a sad note, a remembrance note. Uh, today in Sen's history, it was a sad day, but an, an important day for a guy who did a ton for the organization. It's uh, the day in 2017, August 12th, we lost Brian Murray. So I uh, just want to say we're always thinking about him. And now that we've done the Alfie to the hall like Brian Murray's got the resume to be in the hall of fame absolutely and I think he's one of those guys that he goes so much farther than the Ottawa Senators like like just throw a dart at any NHL team and players coaches scouts general managers I'm sure you can find a Brian Murray connection somewhere because he was so involved in the game of hockey and just an absolute, uh, absolutely incredible builder. His famous quotes is with general managing, sometimes the biggest thing is managing up rather than down. And I think a lot of general managers have kind of learned to realize that. And uh, especially here in Ottawa, that was uh, certainly the case for a long time. So Brian Murray, he was just one of those guys that you knew how to handle on things. Like nothing ever kind of got out of his control. And Definitely, we miss him having around uh, the Ottawa Senators because he was uh, an incredible man and, and a funny guy too. Like, definitely oh, hilarious. If, what was if you talk to Ian Mendez, uh, he we should get him on to talk about Brian yeah. Murray because he has a lot of funny, like just quick, dry wit uh, stuff from Brian Murray that uh, just always makes me laugh. Yeah, the one the one that I always come back to is uh, I know what Michael you're Vic, say here. Vic Strand yeah. <laughs> when, when he went back over. He came over for Dev Camp and then just like went to the airport and left. And he's like, oh, I'm going to play back in Sweden. He's like, no, you're not. You can be a grocery clerk if you want. I won't stop you from doing that. But if you're playing professional hockey, you signed a contract to play with the Ottawa Senators. We're going to be a part of the decision-making. And, like, Brian Murray, obviously we know him more as the the GM in Ottawa and then a senior advisor after. This guy's 18th all-time in wins by a head coach in Mm -hmm. the NHL. Earlier on with the Washington Capitals, with the Detroit Red Wings, and I mean, one season with the Florida Panthers, just 17 wins in, hmm. in one season uh, there. And then in Anaheim, he coached one season, but he was the GM there that built the team that ironically beat yeah. his Ottawa Senators. So it's a, a bit of a, you know. This, it's bittersweet. You're like, bittersweet, ah, I lost the Stanley Cup, but the team I built beat me. <laughs> So rest in peace to Brian Murray. Of course, his influence goes deep, not only in Ottawa, but in Shawville as well, where his family is 
uh, you know, as as well known as they come. So uh, our thoughts and prayers are with uh, the Murray family, of course, on any anniversary uh, brings back those those raw feelings of emotion. So that's it for our show today and the weekend. We'll be back on Monday with Igor Sokolov. You want to tee up that interview real quick? I mean, with Igor, and this is just the thing, like, we don't ever prepare any questions. We don't talk like, what are we going to talk to Igor about? Like, we just flick uh, flick our laptops open and hit record and uh, we just chat with him. So that's the interview you're going to get. He tells us a lot of great stories. How about a story about him fighting the strongest player in the Ottawa oh. Senators organization? A story about uh, his weekend in Winnipeg that Ross was the color commentator <laughs> for and uh, and just how his offseason is going. And I know you guys saw the picture of me and Igor, but... And he's looking good. He is feeling good mentally as well. He talks yeah. about the mental side of it. And anyone who is selling short, Igor Sokolov, look out. This guy's coming for a big gear. He's been grinding all offseason, very focused, very disciplined, I'll say. So he's going to have a big year this year. And you guys are going to have a lot of fun uh, chatting with him. He's just such a funny guy. Oh, my such God. Such a beauty. Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait for that. But for today, we say goodbye. For Brandon Pillar, I'm Ross Levitan. This has been the Locked On Senators podcast, your team every day.